Thank you for joining us for this episode of the IPI Policy Basics Podcast. Today's topic is the student loan problem. We're coming to you today from the studios of Salem Media Group in Dallas, Texas. I'm Tom Giovanetti, the president of the Institute for Policy Innovation. With our IPI Policy Basics podcast, we are building an audio reference library on basic policy concepts and topics for those who want to learn and understand how to think about policy or who may need to get up to speed on a particular issue. Today, I'm joined as usual in the studio by IPI resident scholar, Dr. Merrill Matthews. And today, Dr. Matthews, we're going to talk about the student loan problem, where it came from, how big of a problem is it, and is forgiveness a good idea? Now, I should start off by saying that while our Policy Basics podcasts, we intend to not be time-bound, we intend for them to be topical rather than timely, uh, but on this topic, today is in fact the day that the Biden administration has announced their plan for student loan forgiveness. Mm-hmm. And the estimates are that it's going to cost the federal government somewhere in the neighborhood of half a trillion dollars in lost revenue. Right. Uh, the spending has already been made, so mm-hmm. this is actually lost repayment. So it's lost revenue to the government. So this has been a breathtaking, sort of earth-shattering proposal from the Biden administration. And so right now, everyone's talking about the student loan program, so it's a good time for us to do a Policy Basics podcast on the student loan problem. So we're going to talk a little bit about the history and sort of where it came from, and then we'll talk about sort of the size and scope of the problem, we'll talk about moral hazard, and we'll talk about the forgiveness scheme. So I was interested to find out that if you actually want to think about how long the government has been in the business of education loans and education subsidies, it goes all the way back to the GI Bill in 1944. Now, the GI Bill was not primarily a loan program. It was a a benefit program for those who had served in World War II. They They came back from World War II. Uh, There was a concern, frankly, that we were going to have a bunch of young men who had been trained to be violent who were going to come back to these shores and that the economy was not going to be able to expand big enough to absorb them all in jobs. Right. They were going to be unemployed. Yeah. And I mean, there was, you can go back and look at the literature of the era and they were concerned about societal violence and crime and all this kind of stuff. So the GI Bill was part of the federal government's plan to actually say, how can we help these returning veterans better themselves, uh, uh, adapt to the uh, readapt to the economy. Remember, a lot of these guys they were they were high school boys when they were drafted. Yes. So it's not like they had a career, went off to war, and then came back. So these are like first time workers. A lot in, of them were in a, lot, in a real sense. Yeah. A lot of them were high school, and now now they're twenty, twenty one, twenty two, yeah. twenty three. Exactly. So, and I think the GI Bill is pretty much seen as an unalloyed success, right. and it's a government program that clearly worked. But it laid the groundwork for the federal government to get more involved in getting more people into college, getting more involved in in issuing uh, college education benefits. Right. And not long after the GI Bill. So the first federal uh, student loans were provided under what was called the National Defense Act of 1958. And they were direct loans capitalized with U.S. Treasury funds. But then in 1965, so we're talking about seven years later, it shifted to a guaranteed approach. 
So the federal government began guaranteeing student loans provided by banks and nonprofit lenders, creating the program that's now called the Federal Family Education Loan Program, FFEL program. So this this highlights the the sort of back and forth that's been going on now for 50, 60 years. Yeah, so what, you, is, just, what you just described is private lenders. Right. First off, government lenders right. that were providing this, and okay. then shifts to private lenders with a guarantee. So the question was direct loan, uh, direct loans to students or guaranteed loans to students. That is the private sector providing the loans with a guarantee from the federal government on those loans. And so the guarantee essentially being that the federal government is backstopping the loans. Right, so the private it, sector. Yeah, so you're encouraging private sector lenders to loan the money because if they don't get repaid, the government's going to repay them. Right. So, but prompted by an analysis by the George Herbert Walker Bush administration, indicating that the direct loans would be costly and simpler to administer uh, than guaranteed loans, they decided to shift back to, to some extent, to the um, to the direct loans rather than the guaranteed loans. However, however, uh, as part of the 1993 budget agreement, Congress passed a budget reconciliation bill that would phase in direct lending starting with colleges that volunteered to participate and giving the Secretary of Education the power, if necessary, to require colleges to switch uh, until at least 60% of the loans were direct. But in 1994, the okay, Republicans... Wait, let's talk about... Let's stay at 1992 and 1993 for a second, because this is where, as a, as a parent who recently saw a child go through college, mm-hmm. this is the point where familiar terms start cropping up that are still with us today. Right. So, for instance, the FAFSA right. was created in 1992. That's this, you know, uh, where you have to disclose every single thing about your personal lives and your family wealth and all that sort of thing in order for your child to get student aid. Uh, this is where the Stafford loan pops up, which are still in place today. Right. Almost every college student qualifies for a Stafford loan of some size. So it, it's like it's it strikes me that sort of the modern era of student loan programs starts in that 1992-1993 era. Right. And and Bill Clinton's coming in in 1993, and he's pushing for this as as is the the Democratic House and Senate. In 1994, though. Republican leadership in Congress targeted the direct lending program for elimination. So we're, we're flipping back again. Back, um, back toward where it was primarily administered by private lenders. Right. Yeah. And, and, but many of the college and university officials actually liked the direct lending program. They thought it was uh, easier to do. Um, but Congress, uh, the congressional leaders stopped short of eliminating direct lending and instead, in 1997, they prohibited the Department of Education from encouraging or requiring colleges to shift to the direct loan program. So there's these, these back and forth going on. But then a front page story in U.S. News and World Report found that much of the old time political ward bosses, uh, like, like the old time political ward bosses, the student loan industry used money and favors along with their friendships in Congress and the Department of Education to get what they wanted. So this in is other essen- words, essentially lobbying by private lenders. Right. Yeah. You're, you're going to, okay, you've got Congress, Congress has, I mean, uh, the agencies had the power, and so they start sort of creating a kind of a, oh, a, a system in which they go to members of Congress, they go to the agencies, they try to get what they want. So by 2007, a new volume in the direct loan program had reached its lowest share so what happened was that as the uh, 
with this uh, U.S. News and World Report program, they saw what was in essence kind of cronyism going on in the college loan program because the federal government is, is doing so much of it. So they, they try to pull it back to being the guaranteed program again. And by 2007, that the, the uh, direct loan program had actually become its, lo- its lowest date for years and now, years. Now, it's at about this point that we should start mentioning you in, your, in the notes you assembled for this podcast starting in around that 2005 to 2007 level, you start tracking the total outstanding student loan debt. Mm-hmm. And so in 2005, it was $391 billion. So let's see how that continues to grow as we go down this timeline. So George W. Bush wanted to pull it back to being more of a, um, uh, of a guaranteed loan by private lenders, and they, they like that, but there is this effort because of the... Uh, the direct primary, the direct loans had gotten so small. Finally, in comes Barack Obama, and he proposed in fiscal year 2010 uh, a budget request for uh, to for Congress to for full elimination of the FFEL program that had been around since the 60s. He argued that subsidies paid to private lenders under the program were unnecessary and that cost savings could be achieved if all federal student loans were made through the direct loan program. You can see, obviously, this give and take parallels the different approaches by Republicans and Democrats. It's right. like the Republicans want the private sector to be driving things, and the, and the Democrats want the government to be driving things. And then you come to this, to the Obama administration, where we hear this familiar, <laughs> this familiar song. That we've heard which many is, times. Which is that the private sector is simply the middleman. Right. And the private sector, these are profit-making Institutions. And by cutting the profit-making middlemen out of the equation and just having a direct relationship between the federal government and the recipient of the money, that in theory that's going to be more efficient mm-hmm. because you're cutting out the middlemen and, and nobody's making a profit anymore. So and, how'd that work out? And not only that, <laughs> the Congressional Budget Office estimated that if you went to all direct loans from the federal government, you would save roughly sixty-eight. billion over the next 10 years. So Obama sold this as it's going to be more efficient and it's going to save the federal government money by moving to the, uh, to the direct loan system. And that's where we were. We were going to do that with the, we're going to take that 68.7 and use that actually to help Pell Grants. And so we were tracking the total outstanding student loan debt going Mm -hmm. down this timeline during the uh, George W. Bush administration, it was $391 billion. But by the time we get to 2010 and President Obama succeeds in eliminating, the mostly eliminating the private lending program right. and essentially federalizing the student loan program, now we're up to about $811 billion. Where are so, we now? So we've, you know, we have just about tripled over yes. that time. Uh, then by 2012... You have total amount of outstanding student loan debt at a trillion dollars. Mm-hmm. And at 2021, last year, outstanding student loan debt at $1.7 trillion. So all of these efforts to make things more efficient, all of these things that were supposedly going to save money, it looks like all we did was simply balloon the amount of debt being held by students. Mm-hmm. And if you actually tracked college and university enrollment over that time, I don't think enrollment grew at the same rate that the debt grew. Right. I think that's safe to say that, that, you know, 
college enrollment did not go up by a factor of 10 over that time like the debt did. Mm-hmm. And and so now we've come to a place where with $1.7 trillion in debt, uh, Democrats have for some years been saying we need to do something to uh, minimize that debt, eliminate it, postpone it, do something. So Hillary Clinton in 2016 and her campaign was looking at trying to do something. Either either you eliminate some of the debt or you make uh, junior college free. You do something to try to uh, address this problem of the big student debt that's out there. Yeah. Now, so we, we've got this enormous amount of debt. The, the numbers have ballooned. We're told that it's a crisis, but on the other hand, uh, analysts who have really looked at this have found that the vast majority of st- student debt holders owe less than $10,000, mm-hmm. uh, that there's a huge slice of that pie that owes $5,000 or less, that like so many quote-unquote problems that you're trying to address, it turns out that the number of students who have gigantic debt Mm-hmm. that it's impossible for them to service, is relatively small. But, of course, instead of coming up with a targeted solution that targets that specific problem, no, we have to come up with an entitlement that benefits people whether they need it or not. And we run into this so many times. Like, remember back when the prescription drug benefit uh, came out during right. the George Bush administration? And, you know, folks were arguing, look, let's do something that's very targeted at the seniors that actually need help rather than creating a new entitlement. But no, we created a new entitlement. And so now you've got a situation where just because that's, that is a huge amount of outstanding student debt does not mean that the continental landmass of the United States is full of young professionals who are drowning in student debt. Right. Certainly some. But not not the vast majority of them. And, of course, the Wall Street Journal points out that roughly the unemployment rate among college graduates is about 2%. We, so it's right. very, very low. I these, mean, it, most of these know, people are working. It, you're, you're, the odds are, if you have student loan debt, that you're working and that you're working in a professional job. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, it seems like if there was an argument to be made— for widespread student loan forgiveness. And I don't like calling it that, but that's the term everybody's using. It seems like if there was a cause for it, you'd be looking at a situation where you actually had sky-high unemployment mm-hmm. and that sort of a thing. And you'd say, you'd say we need to take drastic measures. Or here. you might be looking at a time where you had a pandemic where people were unemployed, forced out because of, of the uh, mm-hmm. government. And so what uh, what Trump did and then followed with Biden was postponed the uh, ability, the requirement to repay the loans for a while. So they paused the loan repayments for people, and they've been doing that since March of 2020. Uh, and then this past April, uh, Biden uh, suggested that he, it, it was coming up to a time where or not, whether or not he was going to continue with that because that pause was going to end. He extended it to August 31st, which would be in just a few days. And now he has extended that on to the end of the year. So you've got uh, not only do you have a debt forgiveness going on, but you still have loan a pause in the repayment for mm-hmm. those who are not going to get forgiveness. Right. Let's let's transition a little bit and talk about like the driver of this problem. Okay. Um, and because I think there there are many. First of all, obviously, you know. When you have too much money chasing too few goods, you get inflation. Mm-hmm. 
And that's true economy-wide, but it's also true in little, little narrow silos of the economy. And so when you have easy money uh, for college, that's going to drive inflation in college tuition. And we have seen that happen. We've seen college tuition go up at rates that are far, over the last 20 years, at rates that are far in excess of just the average inflation. Right. Uh, in fact, the the cost of many things in the economy have gone down over that twenty years, but college tuition has skyrocketed over. My that understanding time. is college tuition has been going up at roughly nine to ten percent a year. Yeah, as opposed to you know like an inflation rate that was two percent or lower during right. most of that time. Right. And and part of the driver of this is just this attitude that really everyone should go to college, right? That somehow you, the the implication is somehow you can't be a success unless you go to college, and part of Part of that mentality has put us in a situation in today's economy where what we're actually really, really short on is people with skills. Yes, <laughs> you know we've got we've got you know we've got dentists on every corner, we've got lawyers on every corner. It's almost like the economy is top heavy with credentialed college degree professionals. But they recently were struggling trying to find truck drivers, warehouse right. employees, right. And, and others. We, we, whereas we need welders and truck drivers. And plant managers and supply chain managers and people like that. And, and that's what we're short on. And part of why we're short on that is that we have created this set of expectations that really everyone should be in the white-collar professional class. And and I, I'm for anybody going to college who wants to go to college, but not everybody has a need to go to college. No. In, in fact, I'm reminded of the old thing about uh, Garrison Keillor, like Wobegata said, where, where everyone is above average, yes. right? Everyone's not above average, right? I mean, some people have the the intelligence and the skill and the background to succeed in college, and some people don't. And it doesn't make one better than the other. We, we, we you know, arguably, you know— What's more important, someone who could come out and fix your leaky toilet and, you know, make a six-figure income doing it? You know, that's a pretty valuable skill. The um, And the other thing is the the ease of money. When I, I've got three degrees, and the ease of, there, there was no ease of money when I was there. It right. didn't seem to be—I didn't know anybody who went and borrowed money right. to go to college. What you did was you looked at what you could afford, and that meant you looked at what was affordable to go to. Mm -hmm. And that could have meant junior college for many people. For me, it meant a state college because in Texas, the state colleges were very, very affordable at the time. And then you you worked your way through. You, you worked summer you worked jobs, at night. You worked summer jobs. jobs. Right, yep. You did part-time. Mm -hmm. And you got out with little or no debt. Yep. Um, and so the uh, it, it's just it's mind-boggling to me by making the the credit the availability of the loan so easy and the encouragement of people to go to expensive colleges as opposed to more affordable options has just really uh, transformed the uh, the debt situation out there. You and I both went to you and I both got our educations when when. A hardworking middle class person could work their way through college. Yeah. Again, with summer jobs, part time jobs during the school year, et cetera, et cetera. So let's just state the obvious that if the cost of tuition had simply gone up at the normal rate of inflation, that what what we just described would still be true today. Right. It would still be true today. If the cost of college tuition had gone up at the same rate as the cost of everything else, and the and with your own your own personal wages and salaries that you would st we would still live in a country where the average hardworking person could work their way through college and pay for it.
And so then the question becomes is what has driven tuition to be so high? And it goes back, I think, to that easy availability of money Mm -hmm. that has been the primary driver. The other thing we ought to talk about is this idea of credentialism. There are College has become just sort of a way for a particular class of Americans to just be credentialed. And it's like, you know, there's a story circulating right now. I think it's Washington, D.C., where this, the city government is considering a regulation that would say childcare workers have to have a college degree. Mm-hmm. Well, there's no reason on earth why a childcare worker should have to have a college degree. Right. That's insane. But th- there is this idea that if you are part of the credentialed class, it's almost like being a member of a guild, <laughs> you know, if you're a member of the credentialed class. And there's all kinds of jobs that want a college degree if you're going to apply. That's exactly right. And and there are so many jobs where if you're looking at the job description, like the top line thing is a college degree is required. And then you actually look and think about what's required in that job. And a college degree is not necessary. Right. A, 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 how, does a, how does a college degree in history make you a better child care worker? It's it's crazy. It's it's the it's the it's the educated credentialed guild essentially protecting itself and insulating itself from competition from the non-credentialed. So because of the cost of college going up so much, there have been there have been sort of the the markets found some ways. So high schools offer AP courses in there so that some people can come out Mm -hmm. with several AP courses. They don't have to take in college. Then you go to the uh, community college and in many cases, and that uh, provides you, that lets you to get up to two years worth really. Uh, And so there's been ways where people have found to sort of minimize the time you're in the expensive college but the even even at that, the student debt is phenomenal. And now there's the pressure, now that we've made the college degree sort of common, there's the pressure to go and get the graduate yeah, degree. Like that's not even a good enough credential, right? You have to set yourself apart. One thing we ought to talk about is the fact that it does seem like this bubble is starting to burst. Mm-hmm. Uh, you've had a number of small, expensive private colleges go out of business in the last few years. Uh, there are other small private colleges that are struggling uh, because it does seem like families are starting to say, this is ridiculous. Mm-hmm. Uh, it is great. We do not want our young person to Onli- write. Yeah. And online yes, colleges are coming in as, a, as, as another cheap way to do exactly. it. Exactly. There are the technology and innovation is providing alternatives and, and families are saying, look, if you just went and got a welder certificate, in two years, you're going to be making six figures with no debt. Whereas if you go to university and you get a degree in, in women's studies or mm-hmm. art history or something like that, you're going to come out with eighty dollars to $120,000 worth of debt and no realistic job prospect. Right. Except getting a, another job at university and contributing to the problem, you know? So I, it does seem like this is a bubble that is sort of slow motion starting to burst. And I expect the Biden administration's loan forgiveness program to actually hasten the bursting of that bubble, mm. because I think there's going to be a real outpouring of public anger, because there's lots of people out there who either didn't go to college because they couldn't handle the debt, or they went to a lesser school because they wanted to minimize their debt, uh, or they went with a degree program that was not maybe where their heart was, but they thought they at least had a reasonable chance of getting a job in that degree program. 
And then there's a ton of people out there who knocked themselves out paying off their debt, yep. not going out to bars on the weekend, not going out to dinner, not going to Cancun with all their college pals on vacation, uh, buckled down, paid off their debt because it was an obligation and the right and moral thing to do. And then when you come along and you say, well, what we're going to do is we're going to forgive the debt of scofflaws who didn't work, made no attempt to pay off their debt, got a stupid degree that had no potential of ever earning any money. You're kicking the sand in the faces of people who did the right thing, who and, made prudent decisions, who worked hard and took their obligations seriously. And that it raises the question of where does the Biden administration stop? Because it has put limits on what it's doing right now, but it has pressure from the progressives to do even more. But there's also the issue of, and my understanding is they're doing this with people now, but what if five years from now, if 10 years from now, I have a, a you know, I'm a family and I have a daughter or son or granddaughter or grandson who want to go into college, do they get debt forgiveness as well? Or do we stop that at some point and the next person coming in doesn't get that forgiveness? As, as you have often observed, government programs are like letting the genie out of the bottle, and it's really hard to put the genie back in the bottle. And that is a great transition for us to talk about. Let's wrap things up talking about the concept of moral hazard. Now, we did a Policy Basics podcast specifically on the topic of moral hazard. Mm -hmm. And so listeners can find that in the list of episodes. Uh, what we're talking about today is simply the latest and most maybe greatest example of moral hazard. So moral hazard is when a policy, it doesn't have to be a law, it doesn't have to be government, it could be something in the private sector, but moral hazard is when a, a policy essentially rewards people for bad behavior and suggests that in the future such rewards will continue to be forthcoming, right? Uh, it, 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 moral ha I guess getting away with fraud could even be seen as a form of moral hazard. Yeah. But when, when you do what the Biden administration is doing here by forgiving these loans, you are creating a truckload of moral hazard. Mm -hmm. For instance, if you are a young couple with young children, why should you defer gratification and sock money away for college tuition for your young children? Why should you do that? Which we did. Yeah, which an awful lot of people did, right? And so, again, you're doing without. You're, de you're delaying gratification. You're saving money so that you can put your children through school or help your children through school. Why do that now? Why be prudent? Mm -hmm. Why defer gratification? Because if the, if the problem gets big enough and people scream enough about it, the government will bail them out. And let's raise another issue. The, uh, we've just done a podcast on the issue of fraud in government. So we know who the people are with the loans, but now you have an income cap on that. Mm -hmm. And so I have an incentive to try to find a way. I think they're taking two years of income to look at to see... But I have an incentive to try to find ways to adjust that income Absolutely. because if I'm making over the cap, I don't get a loan. If I make under the cap, I don't know if they're structuring this. I don't, I'm not sure they know yet. But if I'm making under the cap, do I get all my debt? Uh, that is a cliff that really provides an encouragement for me to, to adjust my income in some way, whether legally or illegally, Absolutely. in order to be able to qualify. I, I sent out a tweet. Uh, yesterday saying, imagine all of the professionals out there that are scrambling to figure out a way to get their adjusted gross incomes under $125,000. Mm -hmm. 
And, you know, there are lots of professional white collar jobs and there are lots of small business owners that you can do that. Mm -hmm. You absolutely could do that. You could say, you know what, I'm going to defer paying myself $35,000 this year. I'm going to defer it into next year. I'm going to pay it to myself on January 1st instead of December 31st. And that will get me under that number. Yep. So there's lots of games that can be played on these sorts of things. Um, why don't we just have a little fun ending here and talk about uh, what we think ought to be done okay. about this problem. I, I would certainly eliminate the federal student loan program. Absolutely. I would absolutely limit it. Uh, let's go back to a normal kind of a lender underwriting where... I, I'm still fine with the GI Bill personally. Yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, but, but the idea being that a private lender would have to look at you, look at your high school transcripts. Is this person capable of doing the job? And what's your major going to be? And if your major is going to be computer science and you graduated with a 3.2, yeah, we'll loan you the money to do that. But if you graduated with a, with a 2.5 and you want to get an art history major, no, we're not going to lend you money. Or we're not going to lend you as much. Mm -hmm. you know? The other thing that you could even envision happening, you know how mortgage lenders require down payment mm -hmm. on the house? You, you have to demonstrate to the lender that you have actually been capable of saving up some money, that you actually have some assets you know, before they will actually give you a mortgage. Why are we giving college loans to, to college freshmen who have not yet demonstrated that they can do the job? It actually turns out that there's a huge percentage of student debt holders who didn't finish college. Right. They took out loans. They went for one year. They went for one semester. They went for two years. And then, and then they dropped out. They, they, they couldn't hack it or whatever. Or went to be a plumber where they could make some real right. money. So they didn't even get the degree. you know. So maybe what we ought to say is, we're not gonna we're not gonna loan you money for your freshman year. We'll loan you money for your sophomore year. Show us you can do the work. Those are the kinds of normal things that normal lenders would do if if permitted to function in a normal, rational way and not have all of their practices dictated to them by the federal government. Mm -hmm. The other thing I think a lot of work has been done recently on this is why is the government biasing its aid programs toward college degrees? Why isn't the government spending more resources on skilled worker training, you know, training people to be welders and truck drivers and physician's assistants and uh, mechanics, airline mechanics, and, and people like that. People, these are crucial skills to our economy. And, you know, what you can't do is you can't say, we're going to tilt the playing field toward a bunch of white-collar professionals. We're also going to drastically limit legal-skilled immigration. <laughs> mm -hmm. Where where are the skilled workers going to come from? So, you know, I think it would make a lot of sense to start saying, you know, we're going to let private lenders take this over. And a private lender might very well say to a potential student, you know, if you were going to get a welder certificate, we would lend you a lot more money than we will lend you to get that gender studies degree. Mm. You know, I mean, let, let the market sort of send signals to high school students. I, I, I think that we should state that I think there's room here for compassion for a lot of these students yes. who are sitting on debt because society tells them to be successful. You have to go to college. And there, there are, there are Pell grants and other ways that lower income people can get funds to go to school. Right. And and I don't think that I don't think that either of us would be opposed 
to attempts by governments to give uh, people who are low income but otherwise qualified to give them a leg up. Mm-hmm. That's not what we do right now. And of course, in Texas, the for years the uh, the issue was very very low tuition for the state supported schools because the taxpayers in the state were funding mm-hmm. the schools and that allowed them to make the uh, tuition very very low. Now there were still living expenses and and cost of books and things of that nature, right. but a lot of us in the middle income range when we entered college. Uh, because of our parents, were able to go to a state school and get a good education at a reasonable price. Yep. So why don't we conclude by saying the student loan problem is almost entirely the fault of the federal government, and <laughs> <laughs> so, and so, like most like most of these problems that we see, as as uh, as my idol Ronald Reagan said, government is not the solution. Government is the problem. But let's also add the one more thing. A lot of these major universities have huge endowments, and it doesn't. they don't seem to be using that money to make school affordable for people. No. In fact, some of these same universities sitting on massive endowments closed their classrooms during the COVID yes. pandemic, still insisted on being paid tuition, and took PPP money from the federal government, mm-hmm. and, and this year have raised tuition. So the the only way to limit the the avarice of these large institutions is to cut off the easy supply of money. Yeah. And force them, you know, some of these schools have such big endowments that that they could in, they could themselves be the lender. Billions of dollars. Right. Billions of dollars. They could themselves be the lender. You invest in your own students, you know. Uh, instead of instead of having the government do it, so so at a core, it seems like this problem has been dr- driven by a worldview that everyone has a right to go to college, and if it's right, somebody's got to pay for it. And th- that's the funny thing about the view we have of rights these days. It's it's not so much that you have a right to something as that you have a right to have someone else pay for it. Right. Well, you can find out more about Moral Hazard not only by listening to our IPI Policy Basics podcast on the topic, but also by going to our website at IPI.org. If you've enjoyed this podcast, how about giving us a favorable review on iTunes or on your favorite podcast platform? You can also help to sponsor these podcasts by becoming a member of IPI's Giving Society. Thank you for joining us, and we will see you next time.